On this week's edition of New York Now, Assembly Speaker Carl Hastie on the state's migrant crisis, housing, and more. And later, we'll explore the environment in a new installment of New York And. I'm Dan Clark, and this is New York Now. Today, the Senate majority will pass legislation. I will fight like hell for you every single day, like I've always done and always will. Welcome to this week's edition of New York Now. I'm Dan Clark. New York Governor Kathy Hochul is now playing offense on New York's influx of asylum seekers. Up until this week, Hochul's strategy on the crisis had mostly been reactive, trying to respond as problems popped up. And there have been many of them since this all started. It was just one year ago this month that Republican governors started busing migrants seeking asylum from their states up to New York City. And before they arrived, city and state officials had no idea they were coming. So when they started to show up, New York City Mayor Eric Adams and city officials quickly scrambled to find them housing, food, and other basic needs. But one year later, the situation has exploded. Since that first busload, more than 100,000 people seeking asylum have arrived in New York. And the state has asked the federal government for help, which has not happened. So this week, Governor Kathy Hochul sent a letter to President Biden basically saying that his administration needs to step up and help the state with this situation. But to level with New Yorkers, bearing much-needed changes at the border, there does not appear to be a solution to this federal solution problem anytime soon. And that's exactly why I need to talk to you today. This crisis originated with the federal government, and it must be resolved through the federal government. Now, since this crisis started, the federal government has pretty much stayed out of it. Both the governor and the mayor have been to Washington to push the issue with little success. And so has Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, a Democrat from the Bronx. We spoke this week about the asylum seekers, the state's housing crisis, and more. Speaker Hasty, thanks for coming in the studio. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Good to see you. Yeah. So you're in the middle of an upstate tour. You do this every year. I, I want to ask you how it's going first. Where have you been? Uh, it, it's amazing. Uh, we've, uh, as it's been every year, we've done it every year since, uh, except for the uh, 2020 and, you know, the year of COVID. Right. Uh, so I've been in, you know, Long Island. I've been in the Hudson Valley. And I'm starting the upstate, the upstate um, part of it uh, uh, this week. And I was in Buffalo uh, last week uh, as well. Do you have a favorite part of this tour every year? I know it's kind of like picking your favorite children, and I'm not going to let you say the Bronx. Uh, listen, the, the New York is a beautiful <laughs> state, and it just has, you know, it seems like each part of the state has its own, like, I'd say beauty. But if, but if you ask me, like, what was the, the part of the state that, that struck me the most, it was probably... Uh, Ithaca with the uh, with the gorges, yeah. the gorgeous gorges. I think was the place that struck me as the most like stunning part of. But this this is a beautiful, beautiful state. Yeah, I can't get it. enough of it. I love going to the Adirondacks right. myself. I mean, that kind of like wherever there's water, I love to be there. So I can see why Ithaca would be great. So when you're out talking to people, what, what do people tell you? Because they know the assembly speaker is visiting their area. You're primarily, I think, meeting with the electeds and some leaders from those areas, but what are you hearing on this tour? I mean, it's kind of, it's always like, the, I say it's dealer's choice. Uh, you know, the members decide uh, um, what they'd like me to see, what maybe we could uh, be uh, be helpful with. Infrastructure issues, you know, of course, uh, opportunities for the children. We was in Buffalo last week trying to assist with, with uh, Boys and Girls Club of America. So it's, 
It's really like, you know, bread and butter, I'd say, core, core issues that families are going through. And the idea of this tour is, is to kind of like take all of this and kind of put it into action in the next legislative session is what I'm assuming. Yeah, well, it, it, I'd say two things. One, because uh, sometimes there's, uh, you know, local issues that uh, maybe the, the assembly, the, the assembly members said we may need some immediate help, but then it also allows us to do long-term planning on things that we can uh, focus on uh, in, the, in the following year. And I remember when the first year I did the tour, I was in, uh, um, it was, then was a, a Robin Schimmage's district, but mm -hmm. uh, it's, a, it's a, a similar in Conrad now. And he had pointed to these uh, two large uh, smokestacks that were from a plant that was uh, no longer in service. And then when he brought it up in conference, I had a visual uh, to remember how we were trying to uh, figure out what to do uh, to help communities who had lost, uh, you know, big time, you know, property tax payers yeah. in these businesses. So it does give me a visual uh, that I now know what the member is referencing. I think the big issue in the news cycle right now, at least, is the influx of asylum seekers mm -hmm. into the state. What are you hearing from from your members on this tour about that? Is everybody pretty concerned about that, or are there other conversations happening about moving parts there? Well, I, I think as as always. Um, you know, immigration, asylum seekers, uh, the migrant crisis is, is a federal issue. But I, but I think people also have to understand uh, how we got here. You know, I do believe it was a coordinated effort uh, from Republican governors to overwhelm uh, uh, Democratic cities and, and Democratic states. And now with a Republican House of Representatives, um, it's it's going to be very difficult to get the federal government to uh, to be helpful because I think the Republican Party is uh, happy to have this as a an election issue, the same way they are with uh, when we try to stop the illegal flow of, of guns, uh, so they can continue to have the crime issue. But we shouldn't be playing uh, politics. The, you know, these are asylum seekers, and you know, at some point, the federal government will make the determination of of, of their status. But I think in, in in the meantime, this should not be used, uh, you know, for politics. Do you think there's a way to? flip it on its head, whereas the Republicans are going to use this to knock your members in re-election. Is there a way for you to turn it and say, we are the party that's helping them and make a positive impact for voters to kind well, of Well, that's what we've been trying to do. We're trying to, to handle a you know difficult uh, situation. But as I've been uh, telling people, the federal government can write big checks. Uh, this, this, the state can write small checks. So we will continue to, to do what we can, but we do need help from the federal government, but if, you know, the Republican House, they don't want to send help because they want to keep uh, this alive as a political issue. How uh, how present does this feel to you right now, Sirius, outside of the legislative session? There's not much that you can really do as a legislature unless you were to gavel into session and do something, but I don't really know what you would be able to do to kind of coordinate things differently. Do you see any options there? I think that the issues at hand is, is um, being where can we house the the asylum seekers? I think that issue, and also you know the other issue that we're still hoping uh, is recently um, my last conversation with Chuck Schumer, trying to allow uh, the asylum seekers uh, uh, to work. Yeah, uh, businesses all across the state are, are asking are asking for it. Uh, uh, they they need the employees. I think that would you know help the situation. So. Sometimes even when you're not in in session, you still have the you know the bully pulpit of advocacy uh, to to those. The same way I did when I was down in Washington, uh, meeting with the Biden administration, 
uh, asking to let the asylum seekers uh, uh, be able to work. So we're continuing to do that, uh, but we do need uh, spaces and places and, uh, and resources. The governor in the past month has said that this is going to cause a financial strain on the state. It's already straining the city. How difficult do you think that makes next year's budget negotiations? It's obviously a long way off, but I'm assuming that that's going to be a big part of it. Do you see that really complicating things? Well, you know, it's like we had to put resources um, into the budget this year, as like right. I said, because I do believe this is a coordinated effort uh, by Republican governors to make this a financial problem for uh, democratic states. They well, have succeeded. I don't want to interrupt you, but it's not even really a belief, I would say. They have said that they intentionally sent right. these migrants to New York City because they essentially want the city to be overwhelmed like this for right. political reasons. And that's what I'm hoping that, you know, the people of, of, the, of the state of New York understand that. Uh, and the fact that they were, they, the city has been overwhelmed uh, and we were just trying to assist, uh, to assist the city. And so, yes, there will be a financial strain, but, uh, you know, these are people who came here to this country uh, seeking help uh, while their uh, determination of their status is, will be figured out by the federal government. Uh, we will continue to try to do what we can and, and, not, and, and work with local communities and make sure that the resources are available uh, for local communities, who, uh, like those who have young children. Uh, school districts are going to be uh, 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 impacted by this. So. Like I said, I believe we'll do the best we can. We're New Yorkers, we always do that. Um, but we still need help from the uh, federal government. And, you know, unfortunately, we may not get that help until uh, um, if the politics of uh, Washington changes, because uh, I don't believe that it's in any interest of the uh, Republican House to assist any of the Democratic states in, uh, in handling the uh, financial crisis of asylum seekers. Right. I think an issue like this is like a whole ticket issue. I don't think mm -hmm. it's something that any member of your party can can kind of get away from in the next election. That being said, it, it's an election year next year, obviously. You'll have the legislative session. We kind of see two different scenarios in election years. Either it's a really boring session or it's a really exciting session because you want to pump things up and, mm -hmm. you know, have things to campaign on. Do you see that as next year being a, a more boring or exciting? I, see, I think with between housing and the influx of asylum seekers, you have plenty to do, but is there any way that you want to play it to give your members the best advantage? Well, I, I don't know if we, when we do a budget, we always try to do the, the right thing by the people of the state of New York. It's not about the politics. There's a time for campaigns and a time uh, for politics, but, but the housing crisis is a, it is a crisis. Um, but I think that everyone uh, who's interested in an outcome, I think there has to be a compromise. Uh, nowhere in government does anyone get uh, everything they want, you know, how they want it. And I just think that both sides, uh, you know, we're going to have to figure out a way because if people just want to stand in their neutral corners, this uh, crisis will uh, will continue. So I do think we need to do all we can to build more housing, including encouraging uh, home, ownership, home ownership so people can have generational wealth. But I also think that we have to uh, have a, a protect tenants as well. P you know, people are leaving the state of New York because it is too expensive to be here. Right. Uh, and even the governor's uh, plan that wanted to build 800,000 units of housing over 10 years, that doesn't help, you know, the tenant right now who may be struggling to afford the, the high cost of, uh, you know, of rent. Um, the number of uh, African-Americans that have left are alarming because... 
they don't want to pay uh, these high rents um, mm-hmm. for such a small square footage of, of a place when other states are, you know, welcoming them with open arms. Um, it reminds me of the story in the New York Times about the family who turned their, their, uh, their living room into a bedroom for their three children. And they moved out, I believe, to Atlanta. And they, you know, they have a huge uh, space uh, and a yard for their, for their children. So if we don't start to you know, arrest this problem that's only going to continue to exacerbate. Yeah, I don't understand how anybody affords rent in New York City. I mean, up here, my rent is challenging too. My landlord, good guy, hasn't raised it in five years, thank goodness. That's not the case down in New York City. You see people having their rents raised by $700. And like, how are you supposed to pay that? You have to get another job. It's unsustainable. On the housing conversation, have you made any progress there between the Senate and the governor? Have you had any conversations since session or? No, we, I'd say we have like uh, macro discussions. We, we haven't had any discussions, I'd say, on the minutia. But, but if you ask me what are the two big linchpins that has to happen is, I think there has to be an acknowledgement that we do have to have a, um, you know, uh, some form of an, of an incentive-based housing program, mm-hmm. but it also has to be coupled with uh, tenant protection. So I think when those two things come together, I think you will start to see, um, I, I'd say, movement. And then I'd say in, in the suburbs, uh, as I've toured the state as well, uh, many of the local communities have just said they understand they have to do their share. They just want to have a, a participation yeah. In, uh, in dealing with uh, having the housing done. And that's when I was in uh, uh, Westchester and Long Island. Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting issue. I mean, housing is something that I hadn't really thought too much about before last year when mm-hmm. the governor made the big push. So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I mean, this could be the biggest housing development in the state's history. It could be something huge. But um, a lot of moving parts there that we will look into next year. Right. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, thank you so much. Anytime, Dan. Always good to be with you. The next legislative session in New York will start in January. But moving on now to the environment in New York. It's probably no surprise to anyone watching that New York State has among the highest carbon emissions in the country. And data from the U.S. Energy Information Administration backs that up. When compared to other states, New York ranks ninth highest in carbon emissions as of two years ago, when 156 million metric tons of CO2 were emitted by New Yorkers. That was about 3% of the entire country's emissions. But the numbers change in a good way when we break it down by population. When you look at average carbon emissions per person in New York, New York ranks dead last, meaning we're the lowest emitters per capita in the country. And when it comes to the environment, in New York, there's a lot to think about. So this week, we're going to break down the state's top environmental policies and more in a new edition of our civic series, New York and. Welcome to New York and the Environment. I'm your host, Raga Justin. Us New Yorkers are truly blessed to live in such a geographically diverse state. From the coastlines of the Great Lakes to the beautiful mountain ranges of the Adirondacks and Catskills, our state is a haven for folks who enjoy spending time outdoors. But you don't have to be an outdoorsy person to be concerned about what happens to our environment. You might look at news stories of industrial pollution, wildfire smog, and flooding and think to yourself, huh, that seems bad. In New York specifically, climate change could spell trouble for the folks who live along coastlines and waterways, of which there are plenty. 
And outside of climate issues, there have been plenty of stories on the discovery of contaminants in our air and water, like PFAS. These are monumental and existential challenges we face, but we can rise to the occasion to take them on. And New York has a unique opportunity to be a role model for other states' environmental initiatives. In this episode, we'll take a look at how our state government regulates forces that impact the environment. We'll also go over some of the state's new environmental laws and how they were pioneered by advocates and voters. Let's start with New York's Department of Environmental Conservation, which is the main environmental regulatory body in the state. It was formed back in 1970, following the big environmental movement of the 60s, during which there was a nationwide push for stronger environmental protections. If you think back to our episode on state government, we talked about state agencies being part of New York's executive branch. Each department has its own area of focus and exists to implement and enforce laws passed by the legislative branch. The DEC oversees environmental laws and issues related to pollution and human health. Right now, the DEC is focused on implementing New York's landmark environmental law, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act that passed in 2019. This is an incredibly broad and ambitious climate law with a long list of goals, but here are some of the most prominent. 70% of the state's electricity is to be powered by renewable energy by 2030, with zero emissions from our electric grid by 2040, and an overall 85% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. The DEC is currently working with NYSERDA, one of the state's energy agencies, on how to implement the law in order to achieve these goals. One of the major ways they plan to achieve them is through a cap and invest program. What that means is that there would be a gradually decreasing cap on the permitted amount of greenhouse gas emissions in the state. And during this time, companies would pay for the emissions they create. This money would then be used to fund other environmental programs and initiatives in the state, with a particular focus on disadvantaged communities. But the Climate Leadership Act is not the only thing on the DEC's plate, and we spoke with Commissioner Basil Segos to learn more. We're also very busy protecting the state's water resources. Um, obviously, we are a water-rich state, and um, all of our cities and towns are, are built on, on the waterfront for the most part. Um, our infrastructure has been in decay for, for many decades, um, and really, you know, since 2017, we've been putting an emphasis on rebuilding sewer lines, water lines, um, you know, protecting watersheds, uh, and all of that is, is ultimately to protect human health and allow the state to, to prosper and to thrive for, for many decades to come. And then, of course, I think what, what many New Yorkers off, uh, feel and certainly are aware of is occasionally contamination. Uh, we spend about $100 million a year remediating uh, contamination around the state. We also have a very uh, robust Brownfields program, which allows for uh, developers to redevelop property um, for commercial or uh, residential industrial purposes while doing a cleanup to our to our stringent standards. So it's really um, our effort to uh, to address the toxic legacy of the last hundred years. Up next, we're going to look at two major environmental ballot initiatives that were recently voted in by New Yorkers. The Green Amendment and the Environmental Bond Act are two recently established laws that could have a major impact on New York's environment. Both of these laws were ballot initiatives, meaning that they had to be approved by voters in order to go into effect. Any amendments made to New York State Constitution have to be approved by the people. The Green Amendment was approved by voters in 2021. The language of the amendment is simple. It declares that each person has a right to clean air, clean water, and a healthful environment. That's it. 
just one sentence long. We spoke with Elizabeth Moran of Earth Justice about the creation of this amendment. The idea with this was to provide the public with a new legal tool to protect their communities from pollution. Um, a lot of this was inspired by the drinking water crisis that took place in the small community of Hoosick Falls, New York. Hoosick Falls, for those who are unfamiliar, is a small village um, about an hour outside of Albany, right by the border of Vermont, uh, that found extraordinarily high levels of the toxic chemicals PFAS in their drinking water. And the reason that PFAS got in their water was because of uh, improper practices conducted by the companies that have been there, um, that use PFAS and improperly handled it. This legal tool can help New Yorkers fight for their communities and, you know, basically say, like with the siting of facility, for example, does this infringe upon my right to clean air and water and a healthful environment. The simplicity and brevity of this constitutional right means that New York's court system will likely take some time to interpret its full breadth and application. So keep your eyes peeled for that. Another recently approved ballot measure is the Environmental Bond Act, which was approved by voters in 2022. This is not a constitutional amendment like the Green Amendment but is instead an approval for the state to borrow $4.2 billion to spend on environmental projects. These projects will focus on improving climate resiliency, mitigating pollution, improving water infrastructure, and more. These new environmental laws are significant beyond just their potential impact. Because they passed as ballot initiatives, we can see that the strong majority of New Yorkers have a desire to take care of our natural resources. Politicians aren't the only ones contributing to environmental law. Voters made their mandate loud and clear. It also took the work of many advocacy groups to get laws like these on the books. We spoke with Elizabeth Moran about what her environmental advocacy work entails. There's a lot of different ways to do advocacy. I work with colleagues at my organization and they are primarily litigators. So they are conducting advocacy by working with clients in communities being impacted by an environmental harm and fighting for them in the courtroom. I have partners at other organizations that are community organizers, and they are also working with communities that are impacted by envir environmental injustices or working alongside people who really just want to see stronger and better action on climate and other environmental protections. The other piece of the equation is people who are pounding the halls of Albany, um, and that's a big part of the work that I do. So I work with you know, different partners and community groups uh, where we strategize together to influence lawmakers to pass, uh, to pass policies we need. All these different ways of doing advocacy hit different pressure points within government. Environmental groups are not the only groups looking to have their voice heard on environmental and energy legislation. There are also groups like trade associations. Here in New York, we have IPNI, the Independent Power Producers of New York, which represents a large portion of the state's energy production industry. We spoke with IPNI's president and CEO, Gavin Donahue, on the kind of work IPNI does, as well as his reservations with the speed at which New York looks to move off of natural gas. We represent over 75% of all the electricity that's generated on a daily basis in the state. 
we are the largest clean energy generator association in the state. So over 50% of the electricity in the state is clean energy and we represent those folks. Our primary goal is to promote competition in the wholesale electricity arena to have fair market rules put in place on the trading of electricity through the New York ISO, um, to have fair rules through the legislature, the governor's office, DEC, the Public Service Commission. My members support the clean energy transition, but we have to transition in a smart way. If we're gonna ban natural gas in this state for new construction to electrify things, <clears throat> what is the fuel that will replace natural gas? because right now it's magic. There is no fuel to replace natural gas. Over 80% of today's electricity generated in New York City is on oil and gas. So what is going to replace that in 16 short years is, is something that does keep me up at night and makes me think about. What do you think about New York's climate and energy goals? Whatever your thoughts are, there are likely advocacy groups, associations, and officials who share the same thoughts on what actions New York should take. Adding your voice to the conversation is how real change is made possible. The laws, organizations, and government bodies we covered in this episode will not solve climate change alone. We are simply one state within a country, within a global community. But think back to what caused the formation of the DEC and what caused the implementation of laws like the Green Amendment. These happened because there was a mandate from the people. In this sense, you are the ones driving New York to take action. There's going to be hard work and tough times ahead, but we can look at the steps we're taking together as inspiration that a brighter future is in fact possible. That's all for today. Keep learning and I'll see y'all later. And we are out of time for this week. Thanks for watching this week's New York Now. Have a great week and be well. Funding for New York Now is provided by WNET.